Welcome, my dear friends, fans, and colleagues to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting across the globe for eight years now. I'm your host, Karen Tate, and it is my pleasure to be bringing you this show. Your listener loyalty is gas in my tank, and I thank you all for sending your show ideas, your comments. I really appreciate your monetary support also to help keep Voices of the Sacred Feminine on the air. And tonight, our musical opening was a new artist. That was Elaine Silver, and that snippet is from her cut called Tiss Time. Um, I have on the switchboard tonight, uh, waiting for me, uh, Hillary Ramo, and I'm going to get to that and uh, that interview with her in just a moment. Uh, we didn't really get a chance to talk before the show, but uh, I just uh, send that message to her so she knows I see that she's there. But uh, this is my last opportunity to remind you that this weekend is the big, free, fun book launch party, Birthing My Fourth Book, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape the World. It is an anthology of guests from this very show. And uh, as I said, this Saturday, down at the Goddess Temple in Southern California in Irvine from 7 to 10, we uh, are going to be celebrating the theme of partnership. We're going to have performances, sacred dance, storytelling, singing, presentations, drumming. Miranda Rondeau is going to perform. Rowan Storm is going to perform. Jackie Clark um, Maria Lavetti, Brenda McCoy. It is going to be a big night down at the Goddess Temple. We're going to blow the roof off. So um, if you're in the area, please come. It's for women and men. Bring your drums, your open heart and mind, and the intention to have a really good time. And you know what? If you can't be there, but uh, you want to get your hands on Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, at a discount and before Amazon mails them out in uh, uh, November or December, just get in touch with me and uh, I have some advanced copies. Some of my guests like Noam Chomsky, Laura Flanders of Grit TV, Gloria Felt of Planned Parenthood, feminist scholars, visionaries such as Rianne Eisler, Jean Shinoda Bolin, Phyllis Chesler, just to name a few uh, of the radio show guests are included in the anthology and their essays take uh, the interview we did here on the show to the next level. So it complements what you can hear. Uh, from them uh, in the archive. So please check it out. And uh, like I said, come to me if you want an advanced copy that uh, you can also get signed. So uh, tonight my second guest is Kali Cargill discussing Daughters of Time and Don't Take It Lying Down, Life According to Goddess. But first, as I mentioned at the opening, we have Hilary Ramo with us. She's the found, uh, founder and medium of Love, Breathe for Earth. 
so uh, we're going to jump right in. And hi, Hillary. Hi, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm glad you're with me, too, and I'm excited to be talking to you tonight. Let me just share a little bit more about you by way of your bio with listeners, and uh, then I want to hear all about Love Briefs for Earth. So, listeners, Hillary, uh, as I said, is the founder of Love Breathe for Earth. She's a well-known psychic medium, ordained non-denominational minister. She's a master Reiki healer, a shamanic practitioner, an earth oracle. She's an expert on multidimensional healing, and she specializes in communicating about how the mind-body healing process frees consciousness on a personal to global level in order to help enable body energy and collective consciousness to transcend time and space. Wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> um, her international client base uh, consulting ranges from high-level corporate uh, complex executives to filmmakers, best-selling authors, celebrities, and thousands of world citizens. So, Hillary, you got to tell me what I just read. What does that all mean? <laughs> I'm still figuring it out, Karen. <laughs> um, well, that's well, an honest you know, answer. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, anybody who's ever had to sit down and write a bio about themselves, it's it's quite an act uh, when you first do it. You really have to, you know, own your accomplishments and fine-tune mm-hmm. and refine the things that you do and how you want to Yeah, who am I? <laughs> who am I? Oh, a big or who do I want to be to this audience? Because, you know, sometimes you've got to wear different hats, too. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, it gives an overview of my uh, experience and, and hopefully it gives people a taste of my work and what I do in the world because so often we wear a lot of hats and we do a lot of different things, but they can all be kind of tracked back to the same thread of you know, common commonality between what you do and what your passions are. Hopefully they align with those. So, uh, right. Time, but you, but know, you know what? I, I sincerely meant, though, some of these ideas are new concepts to me. And um, as synchronicity would have it, uh, we had a wisdom circle a few weeks ago, and we were talking about quantum jumping. And um, one of the people in the circle said to me, you know, Y'all might think I'm a little crazy here, but but just listen to what I'm going to say. Have you ever had this experience? You're driving down a road that you drive down every day, and suddenly something is different. And the, the guy said, you know, I really got the sense that maybe for a split second I was in a different dimension, and then I came back. And I, I wonder, is is what you're talking about anything like that that we 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 are actually moving between dimensions and it happens so quick or it's so subtle that we don't really know it but maybe we can control it and be more aware of it well i can say from firsthand experience it is definitely something that you can experience it kind of comes in uh, sometimes as a deja vu experience, sometimes it comes in as, you know, you're driving down the highway and suddenly the landscape looks like Hawaii <laughs> and then it comes back to wherever else you're driving. Uh, it can happen in a form of consciousness and meditation. It can happen when you're talking to uh, a person and having one of those synchronistically magical conversations that just really turn on the human vortex. And one of the concepts that I've been writing about a lot lately is the human vortex and how what that means and and uh, what's involved with all that. And I think that you really sum it up by saying it's, it's a doorway 
into, you know, different dimensional aspects of reach that our consciousness is able to go into so that we can access uh, whatever it is we're meant to access in those places. Right, right. Well, and I mean, I think when we meditate, we probably do that, although maybe we don't maybe use that language, you think? Yeah, I think language really gets us kind of in, in a hot mess sometimes because we all are trained in different backgrounds. We all have different experiences. We all relate uh, differently. But language really limits us in, in many degrees to explaining the experiences that we're starting to have now, especially as we move into these new and bigger paradigms. You know, the world is in a, in a very precarious type place. We yeah. have a lot going on, you know, people really, uh, you know, aren't are really sure what to feel right now. And when we talk about consciousness, we have to remember that, you know, we understand the language of healing and, and going into those places because it's what we've been trained to do. That's not the case for the majority of people on this planet. So we have to learn how to put into context the stuff that we have learned and experienced and have studied over the years and have, have discovered into a contextual language that allows us to get that across to people, cross that bridge, so to speak, over the abyss, into people's minds where we can really make contact and have more of a, you know, um, common type experience with what we're trying to, you know. In a meaningful dialogue, and I mean, just understand one another. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was listening to a talk given at the UN today uh, where the the young woman from... um, the Harry Potter series um, was talking about this new um, foundation or something that's been started, He for She, and she, you know, she touched on the idea of how some women just don't want to embrace the word feminism, you know, and because they think it's divisive or they think it means you don't like men, and I mean, I don't know. I think that is just one example of how one word can mean so many different things to different people. Um, so imagine, you know, you're talking to, well, I, you know, I mean, I think about uh, the people that I grew up with in the South, you know, who still sort of live in that, you know, kind of, you know, Christian bubble. Um, you know, some of them don't even maybe know what the divine feminine is, I'd venture to say. So how do you even start to have that conversation? Um, because our perspectives, you know, we, we come with a different sets of baggage, I think, you know, and experiences, and it makes it uh, often so hard to uh, to really communicate in a meaningful way. I agree, and I I believe that what we're going to be facing in our immediate future is really how to overcome that because we still are fighting over God. You know, yeah. we're fighting over God and what God means, and you know, one of the one of the founding uh, principles of Love Breathe Earth was you know how do we make this simplistic so that we can override those cultural differences, those religious differences, those places or eddies where people get stuck. Yeah, just and kind so of bring it long. down to basics that yeah, we all really, can I, understand. Yeah, yeah, I think we're where we really need to refine and, and break down to the most simplistic forms of, you know, where we where we are where we're at, how we express that, you know, how we connect with other people. We don't right. need to 
put all of our stuff up on the forefront and say, this is who I am, you know, let people make that determination after they've had a couple hours of conversation with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it reminds me of last time I was in Turkey, and, um, you know, I would look around at these women in burkas, and I thought, you know, I bet we have so much more in common than not. And if we could sit down with a cup of tea, that's how we could start, you know, just, uh, you know, our own, uh, you know, you know, just sort of claim our own place as woman or as mother or sister. And, um, yeah, so to find the commonalities. But, um, it, I mean, that, that's wise, Hillary. Um, and, but, but love, breathe for earth. Now, normally people come on and, and that's a book title or something, but this isn't a book title. This is uh, an organization. Well, let me kind of back up a little bit and, and give you the story. Uh, Love Breathe for Earth is an experiential hypothesis to my research and work that I've been doing related to the Voynich Manuscript. Well, Re- I'm sorry, related to what? The Voynich Manuscript. The Voynich Manuscript is housed in the Rare Manuscript Library at Yale University, uh, I went to see it last fall, and I've been researching it for the past year. And, you know, I was getting together my notes and stuff to really put my theory into paper and make a book out of it, and I and I do have that manuscript worked on pretty well. But what, what really happened during the process of all this was that my work started to really want to be expressed in a different way. It didn't want to just be another book sitting on a bookshelf amongst billions of other books, and it, it wanted a different voice. So what happened was I ended up putting it into these global meditation ideas, and the concept of Love Breathe for Earth takes the very essence of uh, many powerful spiritual-type uh, le- type teachings with the breath, with the breath, you know, being the most sacred connection that we have to all that is around us, to the different dimensional aspects, the different elemental aspects. And when I wanted, you know, when I thought about, well, you know, love, love, you know, everybody wonders what love is. It can be this elusive thing that people can't quite grasp, or it's this overdefined thing that people just have built all these hardened type boundaries into. So what I decided to do was create a meditation where people would go into their memories of love, whatever that is, whether it's love for a partner, love for God, love for a child, love for their work, love for fill-in-the-blank. And what you do is you spend some time focused on those memories and you, you really allow the body to get into them to the point where your biology begins to align with your biography. And so as the it's like it works along the same lines as PTSD works where people get very stuck into their traumatic memories well what I'm trying to do is flip the script so that people get into their love memories and start mm. that process of thinking and feeling and creating and what happens is a whole slew of chemical responses begin to take place within the human body and you know then what happens is those chemical responses begin to put off chemical responses into the air. We begin to have this amazing connection to nature. And, you know, there's a lot of scientific proof now that has shown the the realities of plants in relation to humans, uh, you know, how their emotional energies will affect the chemical properties within plants, how plants communicate between other plants through the fungi systems and their roots, 
how they give off chemicals in the air. This it's this really, you know, beautiful, really very interactive process. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. And so what, what Love Breathe for Earth is, is, you know, a moment in time where we gather with intention and uh, consciously engage these love memories, and we offer that as a sacred breath to the earth around us. And people write about their experiences and send them in and maybe, you know, take pictures of what they've done for the day. There's no protocol. There's no ideology. There's nothing you have to believe in. You just simply have to be able to find one spark of memory within your body that invokes the power of love within you, and you celebrate that in whatever way you can, and you make an intentional breath offering to the earth. Our wow. first meditation was done on May 18th, and it was blessed by the Dalai Lama. We, we contacted his office and asked for his blessing, and he gave it to us, which was absolutely astounding, and we did that one uh, back in May. We had... Uh, a, a large group of people from around the world, and I count everybody. So even if one person says, hey, I'm in North Dakota, <laughs> I put North Dakota on a global map, and I track all the cities from all the people that join us, and then I paint these living grids into these gigantic canvases that um, you know document the journey, the living grid of love that we all contributed to and created across the planet and what that looked like this, that day. So we've done, uh, we did one in May, we did one in June. I went to Egypt. I was inside the Great Pyramid for the second one. That was phenomenal. We did one in August. We went down to the swamps in Louisiana and worked with the fungi in the swamps, which is nature's superhighway connective system. And we'll be going down in October to the 9-11 Memorial to do a Love Breathe Earth Meditation anchor to the 9-11 Memorial to help transform and really, uh, you know, work that love energy into the water, into the fountains, into the the uh, architecture that, you know, is, is all done extraordinarily aligned with, with symbolism and so on and so forth. So it's been a really great adventure, and I'm just, you know, I'm just going with the flow. Well, and, you know, for people who might be, you know, thinking, oh, this is, you know, Pollyanna, you know, stop for a minute Stop for a minute and, you know, before you dismiss this um, and think about how people react to fear, you know. Um, And, you know, you think about how Fox News, you know, spews fear out all the time, how right now, you know, you have some people trying to make, you know, uh, Americans afraid that ISIS is going to be crossing the borders, you know, crossing the Mexican borders. And um, so you see how if, if fear can permeate everything, then certainly love can too. Yeah, Dr. Emoto, um, he was well known for his work with showing that how emotions and intention and words affect the water crystal structure. Right. And his right. work is, is relatively well known. Well, he's actually in the ICU right now in Japan, and he's been having some very severe health issues. And we Love Breathe Earth started an inner ice bucket challenge to create your own love water and drink it and symbolically offering a prayer to the founding father of the work. Um, and he's been getting better. You know, we've been kind of keeping in touch with his organization, and he's he's been doing better and better. And it just goes to show, I really believe it goes to show kind of the science behind love breathers because if if our words and intention and emotion can affect the water and crystal structure of of water, well we are mostly water. So what kind of, what does our inner crystalline structure look like? Are we thinking right, happy thoughts? Right, right. Are we thinking fearful thoughts or hateful thoughts? 
Right. Um, right. Are we saying one thing and then inside feeling another? Well, well, guess what? We can't hide from that stuff anymore. We're getting yeah. down to like a critical point where people really have to become accountable for their underlying below the surface normal uh, feelings and effects because we still have so much war on this planet and we have to be able to be accountable for how we contribute to that energetically. Exactly. Well, um, now in your talking points that you sent me, um, it seemed to be associated with your October 8th event, something about the Nikola Tesla room? Yeah, well, you know, we're lucky we get to stay in the Nikola Tesla room the night before we do the Love Breathe Earth Meditation. So what we have done is we've contacted Dr. Emoto's organization, and we're going to actually send him some of our love meditation water from our global meditation on 10-8 that we will be uh, carrying with us from Tesla's room down to the 9-11 memorial, and then it will be shipped off to Japan for them to do the photography of the earth crystal. I'm sorry, the water crystal. And so the Tesla came about because, you know, I had always had this, desire to want to stay in there as a, as a medium as a psychic it's, it's one of those things where you know we, we kind of like to go into places like that to see what what would happen what will we feel mm-hmm. you know um and the room that we're staying in is the room that he died in and it's also the room where he kept his work in the safe to that particular room he stayed in two rooms uh 3327 and 3328 they were they were joined at the time and uh so he had kind of that large living space but this was in particular where he died so what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, just kind of meditate in there and, and see what comes. And, you know, in preparation to arriving, you know, I've been researching more of his work and reconnecting with his ideas and how free energy works. And it really is kind of like the telepathic, oh, you know, big, I don't even know how to explain it. It's, it's like the mother load of <laughs> science behind how this stuff works. So right. when when we talk to people, we were talking about language before, when we communicate to people these psychic ideas or these telepathic ideas, they, they, you know, they kind of go, huh, sometimes. And when that happens, when you talk about science, it switches something. People have a more, uh, they're more recept- receiving to the, the scientific data that can show the validity behind these kinds of things. and. That's where spirit and science really start to support each other and match when you can show somebody the science behind what you're dealing with or how, or why your theory works or how this is being put into play. Then people really get excited because they can they can understand it from a different perspective. So sometimes you have to really offer three dynamics of a theory to really have people grasp the idea of what you're trying to to explain to people or teach or show. Right, right. Well, Nikola Tesla is is interesting to me because, well, I mean, he he lived back, uh, I mean, listeners, Google him if you don't recognize the name. He lived back during the time of Edison, I believe, and um, he he was of the mind that uh, we could harness electricity and give it to everyone free and of course you know in our capitalist society that was never going to happen and um, you know there's just this cloud around his death and what happened to his work and all of that and you know I guess the conspiracy theorist in me um, you know uh, big big red letters kind of go off and, and you know you just wonder if uh, you know people like him who could have really benefited the common good uh, you know, if they uh, had been left to their own devices, um, 
you know what you know the what gifts he may have been able to give the world yeah and, and you know being a conspiracy realist myself i <laughs> i really do understand uh what that means and i i've been doing a radio show for almost 10 years on a chief radio and uh, a lot of my guests that have come on to my show have been whistleblowers in different industries and stuff. And people often ask me, "Well, why do you why do you engage in that? You know, why do you? Well, why wouldn't I? I mean, I'm a spiritual person. I'm very grounded in my spirituality. I, I have a, I have a good grasp on, you know, who I am and 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 what my purpose is, at least in the moment. And when I talk to people, and I want, because it's fun, because you know as a radio host, if you want to speak to somebody, you, you can just reach out and really your chances of, of being able to talk to them are pretty high because you have mm-hmm. to go and they can come, you know, spend an hour with you and talk about different concepts. And, you know, I, I, you know different real-time type headline uh, events. I've tracked the headlines, you know, my whole life. I, I always watch the news to see what the programming is. I, I don't watch it to get caught up into it. I don't get emotionally attached to it, but I do track it, and I do that because we need to understand what the programming is if we're going to deprogram it. If Mm -hmm. we want to break into the shell of the psyche where people have wrapped their heads around, you know, what's being sold to them and told to them, and they really believe it, it becomes the reality. And when we are trying to wake people up to save, I don't know, the planet or the human body or whatever it is that, you know, we're really taking advantage of in, in the process of that corporate competitive type energies that rule the world. Uh, and, and do we really want to be at war forever? I mean, right. how much war can our planet take? How much war can our human species take? How much war can the waters take on this planet? I mean, everything is so intimately connected. Once you realize the reciprocal relationship that exists between yourself and nature, which is what Love Breathe Earth helps to do, you realize that everything is so intimately and and delicately connected that you really cannot begin to take advantage of life or have no care for life or really adopt the whole disconnected spiel anymore because you have felt that firsthand and really have a have a, an inkling into the reality of that no longer being just something you read or something you wrap your intellect around it's something that you can wrap your whole being around and then when you say wow i really feel this happening between me and nature or me and the elements around me or me and animals or me and another person how can you ever take a life or how well, can you ever turn around and, and disregard the taking of lives? It's well, you know, you're you're preaching to the choir here, uh, and I mean, and I ask myself that every day. But you know, I mean, we we just uh, call it the cynic or the pragmatist in me. I don't know which, but you know, we just have uh, you know folks out there that I just wonder if their mind just will ever let this sort of thinking in. You know, uh, but whether it's manifest destiny or uh, privilege or, uh, you know, the desire for, you know, for greed and power. Um, You know, I I, I almost feel like until war is no longer profitable or, you know, that's that's when it'll stop, you know. Um, I I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know that I should probably even say this, but what the heck I am uh, you know when this whole thing started up with ISIS in the Middle East the thought crossed my mind what if how do we know it's not the military industrial complex that was behind these beheadings 
you know. Um, yeah, I just here, assume it is. I just assume it is. I mean, I, I just I have adopted that point, and I don't mean to, to interrupt you, but it's really uh, people have asked that. I see people write, you know, write and read about it, you know, all over the place, and people ask me my opinion of it, and I really don't say much about it because. I just assume it is, uh, you know, some kind of, you know, propaganda to, to just keep this. We're at war with an ideology. We're not even at war with a country. We're at war with an ideology, and that gets very dangerous, and there's very, very blurry boundaries when it comes to that. And it just feels to me like it's a free free pass to go into, uh, you know, a police state globally where we create these kinds of big brother type uh, institutional type things that take life and people really really are, have been played. It's like a giant cult that really has just been allowed to do whatever it wants and its members are the unsuspecting public, the ones that really just trust what they're told on TV without ever questioning. It's the free mm-hmm. mind that wakes up and really starts to say, oh, wait a minute, what's going on? And they shake off those drowsy type <laughs> you know, droopy eyelids, and they and they start to realize what's going on, and they see something, they get really mad. Anger is usually the first thing that starts to come up. They don't know what to do with that anger, so they channel it in a variety of different ways, and one of those ways is even just ignoring it. Yeah. Believe yeah. it or not, you know? So. Yeah, go into denial because it's it's too big to comprehend, you know? I mean, it, it would just leave you emotionally uh, devastated. Well, so Hillary, let me... It breaks huh? your world down. It breaks your world down. It becomes like a destructive force where all your comfort zones are immediately invaded, and you have to redefine who you are accordingly. And that's yeah. very, very difficult for people to do. Well, getting back to love, breathe for Earth. Um, you wanted to talk about living spontaneously and aligned with synchromysticism. Now that's a new word for me. So synchromysticism. What does that mean? Synchromysticism to me is the reality of those synchronistic moments where you just cannot deny the power of what has just happened. Now, what does that mean? That's kind of vague. Well, we all have our personal signs. We all know what means something to us, and sometimes other people may know that language also. But usually it's one of those things where we find ourselves saying, what are the odds of that? That's just amazing. Mm-hmm. And when we start to use that language, it's kind of an indicator of something mystical and magical happening. So it's like the mysticism of synchronicity. Absolutely, absolutely. It's like two words mushed into one. Okay, <laughs> I get it. World. <laughs> I get it. Well, you know, I have a wonderful one of those stories. And uh, my, when my husband and I, uh, we were still living in New Orleans, and we traveled out here to California on vacation. And we were trying to figure out a way to make the transition and move out here. And Roy, my husband, came up with the idea. He said, you know, well, the drawbacks of living in L.A. or the high rent in the traffic, if there were a way we could get around the high rent in the traffic, he said, I'd really want to come out there. He said, you know, if I went back into property management or maintenance, we could do that. We could, you know, run a building and we wouldn't even have to commute. So we're down on the Venice boardwalk and he points to a building and he goes, you know, we could run a building just like that. Okay, well you probably know where the story's going. We went back (laughs) home, uh, sent out resumes, two years later, head out to California. Um, We uh, have a job waiting for us. 
we got here, the job fell through. And so we had to actually scramble and apply for another job. Well, do you know that the place we work is the place my husband pointed to when he stood on the boardwalk and he said, we can work in a place just like that. And that is a true story. I think that's probably synchromysticism. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You know, synchromysticism is really about living your life accordingly. Uh, you know, we. I have seen a phenomenon happen. You know, James Redfield came out with the book, the uh, the Celestine Prophecy, years ago. It was one of my favorite books. It was, in fact, it was one of the first books that I read that really pushed me on this path. And uh, it was all about really just, you know, trusting and finding your way to these things and not doubting or questioning or, or, you know, being afraid of it and running away in the other direction. It really was about and is about being open and, and, you know, just you have to open yourself. And, And in the world that we're living in today, people are still so closed down. And I don't want to sound like I'm trying to be negative, but what we're dealing with is the tipping point of the majority. The collective is just as much a part of us as the microscopic. And when the microscopic merges with the macro, we really start to see patterns of fractalization that happen. So what we're seeing in the larger collective plan of war and ISIS and this and that, and and the plan words is phenomenal. It's just such a it's such an interesting tactic that they're using because. The name of the group is not ISIS, but the United States insists on using that phrase, and what they're doing is they're playing on the goddess energy, and they're they're siphoning off that into the grand global ritual that they're doing, and it's working because they're they're siphoning off the feminine energy into using the word ISIS. does the majority of people really even know who Isis is? Do they know she's a goddess? Do they understand her symbology? Do they really go into who she is? Probably not. People like you and I know. People listening to your show know. Uh, the majority of, of my people know, too. And it's just one of those things where they see it, but they don't really quite, you know, they're not really influenced by it, so they think. But yet it still plants an idea. It's still mind control on some level because... We are, you know, hearing the word ISIS, seeing the headlines, at war with ISIS, coalition against ISIS. It's like this real big effort to prove that they have this upper hand on this feminine energy and that the patriarchal will, uh, you know, the military-industrial complex, which is aligned with pretty extreme patriarchism, uh, you know, can can really get on with this show and, and just defeat her. And I think that whole latte scene that happened today on the news, I was watching the news today, and they showed President Obama, you know, saluting with a latte, very casual. And it sends out the message, well, you know, we, we are just so in control and we are so great that we don't even have to, you know, spill any coffee over this, you know, war on ISIS or, you know, yeah, sure, we sent out planes and we're bombing this city and that city and every other city. How do you bomb an ideology? Right. How do you bomb it by the message you send through your media, which is, oh, I'm casual enough and cool and confident enough to control my troops and this is the kind of, you know, leader that I am, that I'm just so cool and awesome that I can get out of my helicopter and just salute with my latte and then have my news headlines say, latte salute, come on. You know, really, I mean, the script is written very well, it's written intentionally, and nothing happens on TV 
without it having some kind of message for this propagandized. I mean, if you think about what, what propaganda was back in World War II versus what it is now, it's insanely different, yet the intention behind it is, is ex- exactly the same. Well, and, you know, I was having lunch with Roy today, and it was amazing. We were talking about, look how quickly all the media got on board, you know. I mean, a week ago, they were all still maybe questioning, and now suddenly they're all beating the drum, and uh, they're all behind it, and, uh, you know, now the big talk is, you know, it could be George Bush all over again, and that's the scary part. I mean, you know, I hear words come out of Obama's mouth, and, they so remind me of the, some of the things that George Bush said during the, you know, the other war of choice, uh, you know, Iraq, and um, you know, it's it, it it it's exhausting, you know, it's exhausting because I, I guess I feel like, you know, if somebody like Obama can get sucked in, um, wow, you know, yeah. because uh, I I really never thought it would happen with him. Well, again, you know, and this might go back to my conspiracy years. (laughs) It's still in there. I just assume that, you know, whoever's allowed to make it into that position is definitely primed and groomed for that position. And, and, uh, you know, we have this strange idea that our voting rights actually mean something in this country, and I just don't buy it anymore because I, I just don't see it happening. I don't see us allowing the people that can actually make change happen even allowed into the primaries where they even get a chance to stand up and say hey i'm running right now they are they are completely damaged as far as their reputation goes it's like a professional industry that really takes on the, the 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 detriment of anybody who really could stand up. I mean, how come we're not standing up and running for president? You know, I mean, you need yeah. millions of dollars. You need yeah, I mean, I think it would happen with Marianne Williamson out here in Los Angeles, you know. Um, I mean, I, I didn't agree with her on all the issues, but she's definitely, you know, pro-woman, pro-peace, you know, pro-environment. You know, I, I, she's probably co- close to eco-feminist party, if there was a, a, such a thing. And, uh, I mean, she couldn't even win in L.A. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it, it really does make you wonder, you know, what it will take uh, to have this revolution of thought uh, you know, it's almost sometimes I think uh, we're so entrenched in the way things are that it will almost take some kind of a purge, you know, reduce the population down, uh, you know, get rid of the mass media, and, you know, maybe in little pockets in different parts around the globe we can start over again. But, you know, that's like uh, post-apocalyptic. <laughs> I, I would hope that it doesn't have to get to that point for us to be able to start over again with well, a new I ideology. Think, you know, uh, I forget who said it, but somebody said it, that, you know, what, an energy born on one uh, field can never be, you know, destroyed on the same field. It has to be destroyed on a different field. And, you know, I kind of look at our world today with that same thought because if we're looking at changing a political system that is so deeply corrupt, we really have to almost take a completely different approach. Love Breathe Earth was also took that into consideration as well because, you know, the fact that we don't have to think about, you know, what political party we're aligned with, what thoughts we're aligned with, 
I mean, it's almost like co-creating a new world in alliance with nature and letting nature talk to you about real climate change and climate cycles and how the earth actually handles her business because she's still growing out there regardless of what is happening. She's still discovering new ways of of handling the rebalancing and renormalization of her cycles based on what humans do and otherwise. So she's really adept in doing that. She's a master at co-creating within herself a very fully uh, diverse ecosystem that is completely self-sustainable and doesn't need humans to really exist. We are here as an asset to help influence her for the positive, I believe. I believe that the human technology that we are already, biologically, without any extra frills and apps and machinery and any of that stuff, we are already adept with that chemical connection that people really have forgotten that they have. They don't know how to use it. And when they start to wake that part of them back, part of themselves back up, they realize that this is a really uh, subtle but yet very powerful and strong relationship that we have with her. And the more biodynamic we live, the more that that becomes truthful for each of us in our own way. And then we start to free ourselves from this thinking process that we have been tattled into. Uh, and we, we wake up on different levels that aren't, are so much more beyond you know, the right or wrong or the competitive us versus them Mm -hmm. or any of that stuff that Mm -hmm. happens when we get lost and tangled in that matrix. And um, I really believe that that's going to be the way out. I mean, the way out will be through our ability to be able to be completely self-sustaining universes within each of our bodies and how we use that dynamic, you know, kind of interaction with others in creating uh, a force field that helps to just expand and diffract outwards until people are reached and reached and reached all the way around the planet. I mean, how many people can we kill? But Hillary, <laughs> how do you, you know, how do you even begin to get these sorts of ideas to, you know, the kinds of people that really need to hear it, you know? How do you well, how do you for me personally, it's through my co- my creation, whether it's my writing or my radio shows or you know my media platform, whatever it is. I mean, the, the reason I have all that isn't to become a gazillionaire. <laughs> I mean, it's not about money for me at all. Uh, I make money off of you know working with my clients and and uh, you know I make some I, draw, I do paintings and stuff like that. But I really don't capitalize on the message. The message is not a capitalization for me. It's that it's a fun, uh, loving type experiment that I really just want to see what that looks like when we get this amazing amount of people to come together and to do this. And I love watching their experiences when they describe what they felt. To me, that's if I don't do anything else on this planet and I never make a penny, I don't care. I just I love to watch that happen because I have felt that myself and so it's validated every single time somebody else has their own experience and then they watch other people have their own experience and then they don't get really excited because oh wow somebody else felt that too and it's a revolution of consciousness and I believe that some things are just worth it and I believe that the revolution in consciousness is worth it 
and that if we can learn, you know, and study and realize that all the great teachers up until now have helped in aiding our understanding of how we are connected to everything, one way or the other, and then we start to really put that into use, experientially, we start to realize that this is not an intellectual battle. This is actually a submission into the realities of our ultra-connectedness between everything and everyone that we have Hmm. to start to remember and nurture. I like that. I like how how you describe that. And and really, when you think about it, um, you know, like you said, you know, all the masters that have come before, they didn't have the benefit of the Internet. You know, and now we have the internet today, and people like you and I can have shows and uh you know promote these sorts of ideas uh and uh, and the word spreads uh exponentially thank God i mean you know i'm i in my age i you know I grew up with no cell phones, no <laughs> internet Me too. None of that and I actually had one of those old-fashioned phones that connect to the wall, and you have to have a cord that you have to use. Yeah, I still have one of those, too. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, we were were limited to letters, you know, being sent out by stamp and waiting two weeks for a reply. And now if we don't get an instant text back, we think something's wrong. Or, you know, the whole world has changed. And uh, I'm thankful that I've gotten to experience this ultra-connectivity because I do believe that it's been very helpful in its ability to be able to free and to join like-minded people who really can make a difference in the world, have the have the know-how and knowledge how to join together, and to work in that concept. I think we still kind of have our training wheels on when it comes to, you know, this is mine, you know, the ownership of my work. I mean, our, you know, the, the copyright laws and all of that stuff has just kind of, you know, made it that way, but what it has done is kind of kept people from really being able to fully work together as a as a, a team, in a sense. I mean, I haven't I've seen them, but they're rare, where they can actually just get over all that and continue forward and work into these these groupings. Um, you know, everybody's trying to be known for something, and and that's kind of where we get stuck. I well, it's the it's the idea, it's the competition, you know. Right. I, I think that's what you're talking about, co-creating right. versus competition. Right. And, you know, we've been taught that you have to compete, where if we really were taught to just think of, you know, the 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 benefit of the whole in the group and not the I and the me, yeah. then that sort of goes away. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly what it is because, you know, uh, this idea of synchromysticism doesn't work when you think your work is being stolen. I mean, mm-hmm. synchromysticism is about that intertwining of conscious, you know, conversation and, and imagination. I mean, I mean, imagination is a gigantic piece of the puzzle. And, you know, for those that still have their imagination intact and can also not be limited by that, they have an amazing ability to be able to branch out into the ethers to really pull together some powerful ideas. I'm really excited about the generations growing up beneath us because they have had nothing but interconnectivity. They've had nothing but ultra, you know, oh, I just need to know this. All I have to do is Google a question. And uh, they get the answers in a gazillion ways, you know, and they can really go through it in the way they need to. So I'm wondering what that does to the brain on a quantum level. It'll be interesting to see how humans are, you know, a few hundred years down the road based on the connectivity that we have now. 
Well, I do. I worry. I mean, this might be a different subject, but I worry about, well, first of all, I think people have ADD now, you know, attention deficit disorder. You know, they need that instant gratification right now. I I think that's problematic that, you know, this whole society is created. And I also worry about the lack of interpersonal skills. Uh, because so many people can just sit behind their computer or hide behind a phony name and say all sorts of stuff that they wouldn't have the courage to say if they were with somebody face-to-face. And that that worries me a little bit. I think you know, it's almost this dichotomy of while we are all much more interconnected, we are also all becoming less connected, if that, if that makes any sense. It makes absolute sense. Because the the language thing that we've been talking about, you know, the texting and the instant messaging and the gazillion social media apps that you can download and connect, 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 connect. But does it really replace the human touch? Does it really replace, you know, hearing my voice on the phone? Can you really tell my intentions without hearing me? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, for those of us who work psychically, sure, you can get a lot of energy behind the written word because the written word holds a tremendous amount of energy. But for the young kids growing up, I mean, my, I, I'm a mom. I have two kids, and, and they, they have their iPhones and their texting and their connectiveness with their friends. And I see it happen a lot where they, they have to jump to so many conclusions and really you know, kind of paraphrase it energetically, and then I, and then I'll just be like, why don't you just call them and ask them? Oh, <laughs> it's like a foreign concept sometimes. Well, yeah, you know? yeah, honestly, you know what, <laughs> even for me, you know, I have to sort of force myself to pick up the phone now um, because email is so uh, so easy and convenient. But yet you think about the miscommunications that, I don't know about you, but I've had so many on email because you can't hear the other person's voice. You don't really know the intention. You have to, you're left to assume so much. Yeah, and that's and that's unfortunate. But, you know, if you're going to choose to communicate, let's say, through Facebook and, you know, your your communication skills are strictly through, like, a social media platform, um, I think quickly it becomes, it takes on a life of its own and you really go too far. I, I've seen people just go too far with it. And, and uh, you know, it doesn't replace that personal connection. So, I mean, are we growing more connected in a, in a, in a, a kind of like a symbolic type way or are we literally growing more connected? How many more personal friendships have you actually met? People have you actually met from these kind of relationships? Well, you know, some people do really great with it and some people don't and and some people get it very confused and some people are able to be very grounded with it. You know, um, I see people who use social media as a strict social format to interact with friends and and acquaintances and it quickly consumes their lives. I use it to promote my work and to to put stuff out into the world and and that's what I've used it for. So I'm able to stay sane with it for the most part. It doesn't really bother me. It's, It's a platform used. Uh, as part of my work, but for those that, I mean, I've hardly ever used my my personal one because it's just my family on there, and uh, I think I get on there maybe once every few weeks just to say hello and check on everybody and see how they're doing, and 
right. about it. You know, so I think it really depends on how you utilize the connection. How do you? Yeah, how are you yeah, absolutely. You have to be smart yeah. about it, just like anything yeah. else. Well, Hillary, as, as we're, we're, we start to come to the close, I wanted to ask you if you have any advice for listeners on how to tap more into their synchromysticism. And uh, was it uh, the Redfield book? Um, I forget his first name. Was that the book you were talking about? Yeah, Maybe the Celestine, Celestine Prophecy? Prophecy? Yeah, James Redfield. He, he um, wrote a, a whole series of books. The series is, is phenomenal, and I highly suggest them to people if they have questions about what synchromysticism is. Um, but one of the great things that you can do with synchromysticism right, right now, even starting right this minute uh, or tomorrow morning, is just kind of wake up and say, I'm open to what crosses my path, and I'm going to pay attention. So, you know, maybe you're on your way to work and you're grabbing a coffee and some stranger stands next to you and, and for some reason is just in your space and turns to you and starts talking. Instead of the traditional, oh, don't talk to strangers, brainwashing program, <laughs> you might listen and yeah. say hello and engage and then find out that he happens to know one of your best friends and maybe it's time for you to call that best friend or whatever mm-hmm. is revealed to you in that moment is what becomes the sink, is what becomes that magical moment. I know when I was writing Sacred Places of Goddess, uh, it you know it happened at least five or six times when I would start a new chapter. Um, magazines and books, for reference, would would literally practically fall into my lap, you know. And I, I actually have a friend who says books literally fall off of his bookshelf sometimes when he's looking for things. I mean, it sounds crazy. You know, it sounds crazy, but it works. (laughs) It really is. And it's one of the first things that I started to notice, too, when I was in my research years. I just could not read enough books. And I would read a book, and I would always get the sign for where to go next from the next book. And it became a series of, like, tracking for me where I would go from one book to another book to another book, and I would find a series of information that synchromistically came to me. And it's part of how I track. I track the weather. I track the headlines. And... I track a whole bunch of things, and it's just part of a part of what I do, and that's how it works. So, Hillary, um, as we uh, as we wrap up, uh, why don't you tell listeners how they can reach you, and what are you doing next if they want to tune in with you and uh, uh, you know and take part in this? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, they can go to my website, hillaryramo.com. And uh, you can find me on Facebook's Love Breathe Earth Community page. We have a, a great community growing there, people sharing their, their stories and their pictures. We welcome you. We would love to have you join us for October 8th, our, our next global meditation. And uh, we'd love to light up the world with you and create a living grid of love around the world and, and share our experiences because we really believe that that's how things will change. And even if it's a personal change, it still counts. And they can contact me through my website. I do uh, phone sessions, Skype for international clients. Um, I also have a 13-month Earth Oracle apprenticeship program that I'm now accepting students into. I only accept 12 a year. And uh, we have, you know, a bunch of other newsletter, Facebook. I mean, you can find me. I'm around. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Hillary. And for your uh, what you do on Skype, um, are you talking about as a as a psychic or medium that that sort of work? Yeah, the the sessions that I do, readings that I do, is usually uh, people come to me with something they'd like some help with. 
and we go into it and, and we, we navigate through it. And I look into it energetically to see what can be revealed to me and, you know, just go with what the guides have to show us. So the readings, the phone readings are more of a psychic reading, a, a spiritual psychic reading. And if somebody's looking to work with me more one-on-one in depth, then my apprenticeship program is for them. Okay. Sounds like good stuff. Uh, I'm so glad you came on tonight, Hillary. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on your show as well. And, uh, you know, keep in touch. Let me know how this is going. And uh, if anything comes up down the road you want to share with listeners, just uh, pop me an email. (laughs) Thanks, Karen. Good luck with the new book, too. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Good night. Good night. Well... I like that idea, being reminded of synchromysticism, and I like we like that I have a better word for it, too. That's a great word. I'm going to put that one in my pocket. Well, uh, we are about ready to uh, cross the threshold of the show here, and uh, I see that uh, my next guest is uh, there waiting, and uh, we're going to get to her in just a minute as uh, we cross the threshold. So, uh, I just wanted to share, uh, before we start the next interview with uh, Kali Cargill, uh, what's coming up for me really soon. Well, after the book launch party this Saturday, I have a presentation uh, the following weekend, uh, the following Saturday, in Westlake Village at the Center for Spiritual Living on October 4th. And the presentation is going to be called Founding Mothers, Unearthing Our Rich Female Legacy. Then the following day, Sunday, October 5th, I'm at the Pagan Pride Day in Rainbow Lagoon in Long Beach, uh, discussing the need for us to claim and tell our new stories. Uh, because the stories of the patriarchal authoritarian father are not serving the most of us. Then the following weekend, I'm up at Isis Oasis Sanctuary for the Fellowship of Isis Convocation for that long Columbus Day week. And uh, I'm going to be giving a presentation on Saturday night on the importance of adopting goddess spirituality and that mythology for a sustainable future. Because I don't know about you, but I think we don't really look to goddess mythology very often to see uh, what the you know what stories are there, what values are there uh, that really uh, help us lead a better life. So anyway, I've sort of eked out um, some, I think, great ideas from some goddess mythology, and uh, I'm going to be sharing that. I might even uh, turn it into a book. Who knows? Uh, Then a bit further out, uh, as I've been talking about on and off, is the Sacred Tour to Turkey, scheduled for May 2015. Yes, I'm co-leading a tour to Anatolia as Turkey was once called, Anatolia, meaning land of the nourishing mothers. Um, I've gone into detail on some previous shows. I won't go into a lot of detail tonight. Um, You can uh, hear a description, I believe, on... uh, the show from last week. and But if you get in touch with me, if you'd like more information, uh, I'll put you on a prospective traveler list, so just pop me an email. And, you know, I'll be talking about it again. Uh, I just don't want to, you know, tell you all the details every week. I think you'll get bored with that. But the tour is for women and men, and I promise it'll be something you will cherish for the rest of your life if you uh, decide a trip is uh, in the stars for you. Um So, uh, one last thing before I say hello to Kali. Uh, We have something here from, uh, from Joe Carson. 
most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree is. And I came out of it. This is, this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, that was Serena Roney Dougal, Ph.D., speaking in Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia. Uh, Dancing with Gaia explores the connection between Earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the goddesses Gaia. It features 15 visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves. The DVD comes with a 45-page mini-book and costs just $20. You can get your own copy at dancingwithgaia.com. Definitely one I recommend for your libraries, listeners. I've seen it. I have it. It's a good one. And, uh, again, thanks to Joe Carson for running her commercials on the show to uh, help me defray the cost of airtime. So, uh, up next, uh, we have uh, Kali Cargill with us. And um, I want to introduce you to her by way of her bio, and then we'll... Uh, jump into our chat about both her books. Uh, Dr. Kali Cargill is a physician of the soul, living and working in Melbourne, Australia. In the 80s, she co-developed soul-centered psychotherapy, a therapeutic modality based on a profound respect for the feminine principle. She directed the training program in soul-centered psychotherapy at the Cairo Center from 1993 to 2012 and now works with ongoing dream groups and women's ritual. Her engagement with ritual has spanned 25 years of participation in women's circles, seasonal rituals, uh, in teaching therapeutic ritual, running initiation rituals, and sponsoring the development of ongoing moon groups. Her work draws from the ancient mystery traditions of Sumer, Greece, Egypt, as well as the reclaiming tradition. She writes fiction and nonfiction that asks, what if? The themes of her writing emerge from the goddess movement and political activism with a focus on dismantling and resisting structures of power and domination and actively honoring the defending of the earth and the feminine principle. Her short stories have been published in international magazines, and she has five books available on Amazon. She paints murals. She weaves art from nature. She has four children, seven grandchildren, and a diamond python. Well, Kali, you and I have an awful lot together, but I don't have a diamond python, I have to admit. <laughs> well, it's, I can recommend it. <laughs> I mean, I, I have I have danced with snakes and I have played around a little bit with snakes, but they were not pythons. <laughs> what well, were they? Uh, uh, you know, I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember what kind they were, but a friend of mine uh, has snakes, and um, you know, it was just. You know, I, I was just amazed that I wasn't afraid. And, you know, and then when you actually touch them and, you know, you, you sort of, I want to say, you know, it's almost some sort of um, nonverbal communication that almost sort of happens. And, you know, when yeah. you run your hand along them and you realize they're not slimy and ugly, but they're actually very beautiful oh, creatures, you know. It's, it's, like, it's, touching, it's, it's like touching warm silk. Yes. 
Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, some of my friends dance with snakes. And, uh, it, you know, it, I it talk about, uh, I, I know one of your books sort of brings the, the past back alive. Uh, but I have to tell you, watching my women friends dance with snakes, boy, does that ever bring the past back alive. You know, you reach back into <laughs> yeah. your DNA memory or whatever you call it, and it seems so... Um, relevant, it seems so familiar, and it, and I can understand in a way if men saw women dancing with snakes, boy, the sexual arousal, the fear, I, I can just imagine all the emotions that that must conjure up, and it it actually made me start to think. No wonder they started to suppress women. We were just too awesome and powerful. <laughs> Yeah, I agree, and I also think that sometimes when we encounter a snake or a spider or one of those creatures that represents, for many of us, the ancient feminine or ancient feminine wisdom, we get an instinctive shock. And I think that shock's important because it awakens us to something that's different from our modern world, something that's different from the way we see things now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, it's funny how, it, it's how how things just overlap here on the show unintentionally. Uh, we were talking about, um, you know, quantum jumping a little bit at the beginning of the show with my first guest and how sometimes, uh, you know, you get this sense of uh, deja vu or you get this sense of, someplace you've been before, something you've done before. And I think that's kind of a, a lot like that. You know, maybe you are, are are almost either remembering or simultaneously, I know this is going to sound really weird, but jumping into a past life momentarily or subtly. Mm. It, it's hard to wrap your mind around, yeah, like, you know. It, it wakes us up to other possibilities. So yeah. we're not just sort of complacently staying with the current, belief systems and current reality. Right, right, right. Well, um, Kali, we're going to talk about uh, two of your books tonight. One's fiction, Daughters of Time, and the other is nonfiction, Don't Take It Laying Down, Life According to Goddess. And um, I thought I would start with uh, Don't Take It Laying Down, Life According to Goddess by maybe uh, reading the synopsis, and um, then you know we'll see where the conversation takes us. Is that okay with you? Okay. Sure. Yeah. So, I think that uh, I think don't take it lying down is important. I think it's a, probably a more important book in a way, but perhaps not as much fun to read because it's not fiction. <laughs> right, right. And you know, and I do like the fiction books because when they're good and they're well researched, I think they give us permission to remember. You know, they spark our creativity. Yeah. They they spark that ancient memory and maybe help us remember what it once was when, uh, you know, women, you know, lived in a different time when, you know, they still had power or shared power and, you know, before the, you know, Christianity made women submissive, you know, the authoritarian father, you know, swept the goddess, you know, beneath the rug. Um, so, yeah, so we won't get to the... That's what women tell me. Yes. Sorry, that's certainly what women... Yeah, well, you know, in the book that I think about, I mean, I know she's a controversial figure now these days, unfortunately, but uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley's uh, Miss of Avalon, I know that, you know, seeing, you know, that whole story of Camelot through the eyes of the women, 
uh, and through the eyes of the pagan priestesses, boy, that story just took on an incredible, um, you know, mm. it, it, it was incredibly powerful. But, yeah, uh, but let's was, do the, yeah. the nonfiction one first. Um, Don't Take It Lying Down, Life According to Goddess, uh, is a nonfiction book that invites readers to see through the collective beliefs, attitudes, and practices which bind women to a worldview that denies power, choice, and control in many aspects of, our, of their lives. It's about the feminine principle and what's been lost. It's about reclaiming our birthright. This is a book about mind, body, birth control, which I definitely want to ask you about. Uh, this radical approach challenges many of our socio-cultural and historical assumptions about women in power. Readers can take up a mind-body birth control as a practice or use it as inspiration for what becomes possible when we don't take it lying down. Don't Take It Lying Down weaves a tapestry of information from history, mythology, anthropology, and archetypal psychology with personal exercises woven into every section. Well, that sounds like the perfect book for us here, Kali. That is exactly what we talk about, uh, you know, from one uh, perspective or another um, week in and week out over the last eight years because, you know, there's a lot of relearning uh, the women have to do and men, you know, a lot of reawakening um, you know, a lot of imagining what might be and um, the rejection of what is normal. Yeah. yeah, a lot of relearning that needs to happen and a lot of challenging of the belief systems that we just take for granted. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, and that, that's what I sort of mean by, you know, the what we accept as normal is really crazy, you know, especially especially for women. Yes. You know, this this idea that yes. we should be submissive or second-class citizens or, you know, we should make less money simply by virtue of the fact we have a vagina and not a penis. You know, it's it's insane when when you start to try to and peel it. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And this goes to the core of what mind-body birth control is about because really what it's doing is saying that... Um, we're not passive receptacles to whom pregnancy can happen. And like that seems obvious in these post-feminist times when we have access to contraception, for many women in the world anyway. But there's still an underlying belief that having sex can make you pregnant. And our experiences would seem to support that. But what I'm really saying is that it's not sex that makes us pregnant. It's our choice. So when a, when a woman chooses to allow fertilisation, implantation and nurture of a fertilized egg, then she becomes pregnant. It's not something that just happens to her if she forgets to take the pill or other contraception methods fails. The distinction, that distinction is fundamentally important as it's a radical restructuring of what we've been taught by medical science, by religion, and even by our mothers and sisters. Okay, all right, we'll wait now. <laughs> okay, because now now you sort of got me scratching my head and I want to make sure I understood what you just said. It You you almost seem yes. to be saying if we don't want to become pregnant, we won't become pregnant. But, I, I mean, I, I guess, you know, you, you must know something I don't know because I think, you know, biology is such that our mind doesn't control it. Cause think of all the women who were raped, uh, you know, uh, you know, raped as a, a you know a tool, a weapon of war, or uh, you know all the unwanted pregnancies out there. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I mean. Our experience would seem to confirm that we can be made pregnant as if we are passive receptacles, and 
I, I understand that you know two millennia of conditioning have made it seem so. So what I'm saying is quite radical and it would make you scratch your head. I really understand that. But if we can actually accept that it may be possible that through a communication between mind and body, not mind over matter, but a cooperation, a collaboration, that we as women can choose whether or not sperm meets egg, whether or not the fertilised egg is implanted, whether or not that implantation is nurtured to grow into a child. If there is actually some room there for choice, then we're talking about something very radical and a radical restructuring of our beliefs. About True. True, and also, I mean, that would, uh, and, and I mean, that that's, uh, look, you know what, I am open-minded. I, there's not much I don't think is possible. Um, it, 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 and that would also call upon us to have a, you know, have, well, this, um, this type of mind-body connection that probably we can't even fathom in, uh, you know, in, in our current lifetimes. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's, a, it's a radical notion in these current times, and many women have reported that it's quite a frightening notion to them because what would it mean to take responsibility in that sort of way, to claim full reproductive autonomy in that sort of way because it challenges so many other assumptions that are linked into it. Well, because wouldn't that that's also why I think mean it's that you... Important. Well, well, wouldn't that also mean that you could obliterate disease from your body? I mean, if it, it you well, know, you would, it, it could almost be the same thing I, then. Well, I, I think there's certainly a relationship, but I think that it's dangerous to move into that territory of we control our own reality absolutely. I think that can be quite a another sort of tyranny. Um, so it's something about a, an ongoing living relationship and negotiation. More than a, more than as I say, mind over matter control, and uh, so it, for me it was a living relationship with the great with the great mother with the goddess that came about after having children, and finding that modern contraceptive methods failed me in all sorts of different ways, and um, it was like, well, how did women once do this? Did they once do it differently? Is there another way to think about this to feel about it? And that's really how it emerged for me, from my own living experience. And then I decided to research it and find out more about it. Interesting. Well, and, you know, you make me think about a guest I've had on oh, a long time ago, but it was a really interesting uh, subject of uh, parthenogenesis, you know, and could, you know, did ancient priestesses a long time ago have the ability to become pregnant, you know, um, through light emanation or, you know, but but really with, without a male partner. And, you know, it, you, you, this may be part of that as well in, in a way. It is very intriguing because there is some scientific evidence for parthenogenesis in, I think it's turkey eggs I remember reading, but that, that, it's not completely out of the realm of even scientific possibility. So, yes, I, I haven't explored that specifically, but of course that's in the same sort of territory as when there's this dynamic relationship between mind and body and with the goddess, what I call the goddess, that feminine principle that's imminent in nature, then yes, what becomes possible? And one of the things that becomes possible is this 
internal management of reproduction. And then the political implications of that are enormous because when women and men acknowledge the life-giving power of the feminine and of nature, then it's fertility that is valued. But when that is, is lost, then it's women's erotic power that becomes valued. And we're certainly in an era when that's the case. And what are the implications of that? What does that mean for us? What does it mean for the world when we stop valuing the life-giving power of the feminine and of nature? And obviously the implications are enormous. True. Well, and I mean, in just the idea of getting our lives, uh, you know, back in our own hands, you know, out of the hands of big pharma, out of the hands of religious institutions, yes. out of the hands of men in general, because, you know, they should not be the ones ruling us. Uh, you know, they're not the boss of me, you know, as, you know, kids, uh, kids <laughs> like to say. Um, you know, I, yeah. I mean, it, it's incredible when you think about it, you know, who women let be their boss. It's it, amazing it, when we think about it. And, yeah, well, shocking, and, and I really. think the older I get, the more the more angry I get about it, you know, because it's like, well, who mm. in the heck, you know, you know, why do we allow this to stay in place, <laughs> this, this structure? Which is what, <laughs> yes. Yeah, which is why I called the book Don't Take It Lying Down because, of course, that refers back to Lilith's um, decision, Lilith's action to um, not have sex in the missionary position with Adam. And, you know, he tried to force her. She left the garden and, you know, she came back as the serpent to offer Eve the choice, I think. So Don't Take It Lying Down, I think, is a very apt um, catchphrase, really, for all of this. So do you, do you have a theory, Kali, why so many women do take it lying down? I think we've been terrorised by um, the traumas of the Inquisition. I think that, that the collective trauma of that is still having a very deep and almost immeasurable effect on women. When I teach mind-body birth control to women, what I first encounter is a layer of fear, and I encounter this in my own practice. Is it, is it's as if I am going to be burnt at the stake for doing this. Now, of course, my rational mind knows that in this day and age, especially in a country like Australia, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, I live, it's very luxurious here in that sense. And yet the layers of fear that I encountered in learning about and engaging the practice and the research of the practice um, were, were huge. And other women have reported the same. And I think that points to a collective trauma. So you think it's a sort of cellular memory that we're, you know, that's just buried deep down there in our psyches from, you know, reincarnation, you know, living living those lives in the past. Well, you see, for me, my orientation is more towards the idea of a collective unconscious, as Jung described, rather than necessarily chronological past lives. But I think, I think, yes, I think it's the same in a sense because it's DNA memory, it's cellular memory. Um, we know that if we deviate beyond a certain beyond certain parameters, that something disastrous will befall us. And so most people stay within those parameters. So they may be um, claiming something in one area of their lives. But this idea of true reproductive autonomy is frightening to most women. 
Why? Well, Why would it be frightening? It could be exciting. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, the, it, I mean, it, it, in a way, when you think about it, it's crazy that it it would be any other way, you know. Um, I, I don't know, yeah, you know. Some, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shame, we too. have this shame weird shame delay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, I know. That's okay, but go ahead. We, we, we're, I, we're working through it. <laughs> well, I was talking about shame is one of the ingredients of that, that um, when people, women become frightened that they will become pregnant in, a, in perhaps if they're not married or an unwanted pregnancy carries with it echoes of shame. Why are we even ashamed of that? It's a natural function. It may be the timing may be wrong. The timing may be right nothing to be ashamed of and yet there's so much shame that's wrapped around all of this and if we start to unravel the shame that's when we move back into those collective traumas and um, the the indoctrination the conditioning that we all are subject to in relation to our own bodies to fertility to reproduction you know, Kali, I, I don't often get a chance to talk to uh, women from other countries, and I'm wondering, what is the climate there uh, for women? Uh, I, you know, here in the United States, uh, conservative Republicans are just going batshit crazy uh, trying to turn back the clock, you know, 20, 30 years. You know, uh, we thought we had won the right to an abortion, you know, that the subject of women having access to contraception wasn't even, you know, worthy of conversation. And, you know, they're just going crazy from one state to another uh, trying to make mm. abortion impossible, uh, you know, you know, and, and it's all the religious right, mm. you know. It, it's, And I'm wondering, do, are women having that problem? in Australia as well? Well, really what's happening there is quite terrifying, isn't it? It's, um, and look, we don't know. Thankfully, we're having a little, some of those issues with our current government, but not in relation yet, at least, to um, abortion and um, reproduction, but, well, reproductive rights. But certainly in other areas, yes, we are, have seemed to have regressed um, many decades with our current government. And it is very frightening. I, could you repeat what you just said? Because I couldn't, I, I couldn't quite hear the specifics. I heard you say it's very frightening. But what areas are are, well, are, I, are, are the? Okay, no, we're not we're not experiencing it in relation to abortion. We certainly it's happening here in relation to um, climate and climate change. There's a there's a regressive attitude, but no, it hasn't yet. Hopefully, and hopefully it won't filter through to women's reproductive rights. Um, okay. But it is... Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember seeing a video, a YouTube clip of one of the women in... Um, the Australian Parliament or something, forgive me, I'm probably not using the right terminology, but she just read the men a riot act uh, because of their sexism. Yes. And I wondered if... The misogyny if, speech, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, Julia Gillard. It, yeah. Say again. Sorry, that was Julia Gillard, the misogyny speech, which is quite famous. Okay. Julia Gillard okay. was our prime minister at the time. Yeah. And um, is that? Um, I, I, I guess I'm wondering is. You know, did that help? I mean, did that like raise awareness, or it sort of just came and went? 
Well, look, that's a very look. That 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 speech has been reproduced. It's just recently been put to song in a very dramatic way, a very effective way. But is it really only those of us who already believe who are listening to it and responding to that? Um, we we um, the, the person to whom that speech was addressed was elected as our next Prime Minister and even though it's only a small majority in Australia that allows that to happen in terms of the voting nevertheless he's now our Prime Minister and he was the person to whom that misogyny speech was directed so I don't know the answer to that I, um, I'd i like to say that you know <laughs> it's um, that speech reached a lot of people but mainly only those of us who already were convinced um, right. were impressed by it that's always right. the concern. Right. Mm. Um, so you, um, in, in some of the information you sent me, um, you said when fertility is highly valued in a culture, women have reproductive power. Speak to that a little bit. Well, when, I mean, when we, really there's something extraordinary that women do, isn't it, which is to produce life from our bodies. We do many extraordinary things, of course, but that's one of them. And that is a very fundamental one that women have always done. And when that's valued, then that changes the whole balance of the culture. You see, we don't particularly value it now. It's not it's something women do, but it's sort of been um, devalued in a way. And in, in a way, some aspects of feminism have contributed to that, inadvertently, I think. But... Um, this is extraordinary life-giving power in the feminine and in nature. And when we truly value that, we're not going to do anything to harm it or disturb it. Um, but it's not valued, and so we're doing all sorts of things to harm it and disturb it, including, in my opinion, using the contraceptive pill. Well, and, and, I, and, and, well, and to expand on that a little bit, I think what you're saying is when... Um, when we value that life-giving force, then it affects us economically, it affects us politically, it affects us militarily, because maybe we're not going to send our kids off to war if we value yes. life. Maybe we're going to not destroy yes. the social yes. safety net if... Uh, you know, if we value life. Uh, you know, it, our... Yes. You know, suddenly our... I think we take life for granted now because mortality rates are not what they used to be in ancient times, you know. Most mothers and yes. children make it through a pregnancy. Yeah, that's right. I think we take it for granted, but we also, um, I think part of the whole patriarchal conditioning is that it's not valued, it's not given a central value, because to give it a central value takes away the value of the father god um, and, you know, the, the monotheistic father god who, you know, condemned women in all sorts of ways, in the Bible anyway. So, you know, there's a there's a takeover that's happened that has, yes, increased all sorts of um, patriarchal priorities, as you named them before. So it's, right. um, it has huge implications. Now, why do you think, um, uh, you know, contraceptives, or affecting or adversely affecting women's life-giving abilities? I think that the contraceptive pill, while it has given certain freedoms, obviously, and changed um, women's experience of their sexuality, their relationship with life, work, all sorts of things, it does 
also remove us a step from the natural rhythms and cycles that have been part of um, women's experience forever. You know, the, the first, you know, as we know, the first time was was marked on on bone or, you know, with the cycles of the moon, the cycles of bleeding, um, and it sort of takes us away from that. That becomes artificial. It becomes managed by the pharmaceutical companies rather than by the moon. And I think that's a metaphor for much of what's happening in our world today. Well, well you know, there's all. East. Go on. Yeah. Well, I was. Uh, well, you said uh, you said in your materials that you practice mind body birth control. Now, now you've already said that this is, or, or I, I think you've alluded to this is like beyond just the rhythm method or something. This is actually, you know, more of a conscious mind body um, collaboration, so to speak. Um, yes. But you know we we know how ineffective um, you know the rhythm method is. Um, do you find? I mean, have you found that this mind body birth control that you do, um, and and the women you know that use it, is it is it as reliable as the pill? <laughs> that's that's a really good question. It's as reliable. It's more reliable than the the pill when we're able to enter into the um, relationship that makes it possible. Which sounds like a tautology, but there are layers and layers of conditioning that have to be worked through to to make it a living reality and a workable, a hundred percent reliable reality. But it's you know we're going to encounter socio political, religious emotional, psychological um, beliefs that get in the way of doing this very simple thing. It's actually very, very simple. What women report that they do is um, imagine, sense, experience a trapdoor between so that the sperm doesn't ever meet the egg. Some other women experience, imagine, sense the lining of the uterus shedding so that implantation isn't possible. So there's a variety of ways women would describe that they imagine, experience, sense, mind-body birth control. But to be able to do it, they need to move through the layers of conditioning that would say, we can't do it. We have no right to this power or choice or control. That's the, that's the major block. Well, and, and I can see where I would certainly be blocked if I, um, I mean, even knowing everything I know, um, I, I think I would be blocked simply out of fear that there would be a mishap, not because I wouldn't think I was entitled to the control, uh, but simply because I would be afraid that somehow there would there would be a mistake. And I guess what I'm also thinking, Kali, is, you know, you're, you're you're talking about women really doing some deep, intense self-reflection. And isn't it hard mm-hmm. to get people to take the time to do that in earnest? I mean, um, it's got it so much easier to just pop the pill, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you're right. You're absolutely right. And that's why I say that don't, my book, Don't Take It Lying Down, women can take up the practice if they so choose. But really what I'm saying is that let's let's just consider what this means. Even if you don't want to use this as a contraceptive practice for all sorts of reasons, let's let's actually look at it philosophically. Let let's look at what it means in terms of our underlying belief systems. Um 
you know, if you choose to take the pill after doing all this internal or this whatever after reading the book, that well, I don't know if it's fine, but it's your choice. But right. it's something about let's un- let's unpack the belief systems and not just be doing it unconsciously or automatically or within the conditioning which be- has been imposed on it. Let's unpack that and and really explore. Yeah, because what, if they if they right. unpack that, you know, it it it's almost as if the the you know the the fertility issue may almost become secondary because then they're going to start to examine the patriarchal world and then they're going to start to examine their role in it. And really the subject is so much bigger than reproduction. And is this sort of just a carrot to to get them to look at that other stuff? Look, it 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 was it is my lived experience. I mean, I'm postmenopausal now, but and, but for I don't know, 25 years, I did practice mind body birth control. I've spoken to other women who do. There are not many of us, and it is something that I don't expect to suddenly become a groundswell movement that most women are going to take up for all the reasons that you've named and that we've talked about. But I do think that because it's a reality, it is a living reality that some women have experienced. I think it really, yes, it's a carrot. It's more than that. It's a, it's an imperative to say, look, this is possible. You may not want to do it or be able to do it right now, but some women have. What does that mean? Yeah. What would it mean if we really accept that it's possible? So, yes, it's a carrot in that sense. Right. Um, but it's a carrot that I'd like more people to eat. You know, I don't, I don't want to just right. be dangling it in front of people. I'd like them to be able to ingest it and um, metabolize it and make it their own. No, no, I get that. I, I, I do, I do totally get that because if women suddenly, um, okay, this, I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to be a little raw here, okay. But I'm thinking about all of these white Christian men up in Congress in the United States, if women figured out a way to do this mind-body control of their reproductive system, they could, you know, women could go up there and give them all the middle finger, you know, and, That's and right. say, That's right. <laughs> you know, you, you, uh, how dare you? <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're oh, not going to take it lying down. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and it's, yeah, we put the pharmaceutical companies out of business. I mean, it, it's radical. It's actually yeah. has huge implications. I love yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, okay, so it. let's. It's true. You know, it's actually true. Go, go ahead. It's actually true. It's really, well, well, it's true. It really, it really can happen. I mean, it really is possible. It's not just a fairy tale or a fantasy. I know I've practiced it. You know, I know other women who have. I've researched it back through history through anthropology. There's a lot of anthropological evidence that this is what people in pre-industrial cultures were doing. They really? They called it this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, really I, I didn't it. know they that, did. you know, because we read about, oh, the Egyptian women used, like, uh, crocodile dung as a, you know, as a form of yes. uh, birth control. And um, so I didn't really realize that they were doing this mind-body thing. Well, one of the things from the research with the Trobriand Islanders is that young, the young people before marriage actually spent time together, sleeping together and having sex together. And there were very, very, very few conceptions. And how did that happen? What were they doing? The observations would suggest that what they were doing was um, praying or honouring the spirit of the 
place where they lived and therefore just requesting to not become pregnant. Now, was that the spirit or was that actually a way to activate the mind-body process I'm talking about? Because hmm. when our belief systems change, then those sorts of processes become possible. So their belief system said that if I make this offering to the spirit, I won't become pregnant even though I have lots of sex. And they didn't. Most of them didn't. I don't know about the ones who did. I don't know enough about what happened there. But, you know, they, they didn't. Most of them didn't become pregnant. And Wood, wood Islands? And there are lots of stories. Lots of stories. The Trobriand um, Islanders? Well, and you, you're there with all the Aboriginal people. Is there any sort of, um, you know, is, is that reflective of uh, any of their practices? I actually don't know that, and um, it's not something that I read about in the anthropological work or sociological work with the ad- Aboriginal people. I mean, certainly the, the men simulating the bleeding um, with the sub-incision practices is something that's very intriguing in Aboriginal practice, but that's not necessarily directly related to fertility as far as I know. It's something about wanting to take the life-giving power of the feminine and somehow make it their own. And that's right. also very commonly observed in anthropological studies. But I don't know about their contraceptive practices, and I don't know if they know now. This is the, the terrible discontinuity of information when there's been invasion, when there's been so much destruction of a culture. Right, right, right. It, it is unfortunate. We lose so much. Um, all right, well, before we run oh, out of time, so let's let's uh, talk a little bit about Daughters of Time. Uh, so Daughters of Time is set where? In Sumer, right? It begins in Sumer 4,000 years ago, and this is the last flowering of the Sumerian civilization. And it begins with a sort of an idea of what if there were another stream? We know about the... Um, if you like, the sons and daughters of Abraham, especially the sons of Abraham and all that has followed from that. But what if there were another stream? What if there were a line of daughters who came from a union between Abraham and a Sumerian priestess and this line of daughters is carried down through time, through 4,000 years, carrying the way of the goddess with them. So it started with that premise and exploring um, how would that be? How would these daughters travel through time? Where would they be living? How would they be living? Um, some of them are ordinary women. Part of the message of the book is that it's ordinary women who carry the way of the goddess through time. Sometimes they consciously know they're doing this. Other times they're just doing what comes naturally and they're doing it. Um, so the book explores many different dimensions of that through 4,000 years to the present day. So, um, I, you know, you must have had to do a lot of research about um, the <laughs> role of women uh, in Sumer. Uh, what do you think are, are maybe some of the most interesting things that maybe most people don't know? That's, I don't know most. I don't know how much most people know, but I do think that the um, fundamental regard for the life-giving power of the feminine was was present more often through the ages than we probably realise. That we, we hear a lot about the wars, the conquests, like the king lists. You know, the king lists were studied and learned by anybody who was educated. But meanwhile, in the background, there are women giving birth to the kings, giving birth to everybody, and 
amongst women, often in oral tradition, this is deeply, deeply valued, but it's often not written in our history books. And, and I think it's that that, um, that we forget about. And it's there in songs, it's there in you know, statues, it's there in art, but it's not really written in our history books. It's often not in the written word. And that, so that's the bit that gets lost, I think. And I've sort of tried to write about it, to put it into the written word, about how there can be this stream, this lineage through time and across time. Yeah, it's true. You know, I mean, it, it, well, and you also, you know, you think back and, you know, you read about, well, of course, his, you know, history, what we, what we read today, uh, you know, was written by the conquerors. You know, you hear that oftentimes it was the men that was more educated than the women, so hence the women were not doing a lot of the writing. Uh, and, you know, maybe they didn't think the everyday stuff of birth and babies uh, warranted documentation. I, I think that's what you're probably saying. You know, mm. it, it doesn't rise to the level of importance of, of of men's wars. Apparently not. And yet, I I would say that there were, the songs were sung about it, and you know, all the 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 wonderful statues that we're finding, the the images of the goddess, the very fertile, abundant goddess, that are suggesting to us that there is this um, continuity of a of meaning back tens of thousands of many you know a long long time, um, and so it's that continuity that I wanted to explore. Well, and it's you know, and when you think about it though, Kali, it's not just continuity. You know, if if we really examine it, it's the women that hold the threads of life together, of community together, of civilization together, while it's the men that are off playing with their bullets and bombs and tanks that are so quick to destroy it. Yeah, yeah. And that that certainly that that's all, I explore that in Daughters of Time because you know one of the that it's like well the kings change, the the conquerors change, but meanwhile life goes on for those people who survive, those people who aren't destroyed by the wars, the battles. Life goes on and that's the continuity. Yes, you're right, that's the thread that can, that allows us to continue through time. It's not the wars and the battles and the conquests that allow us to continue. Right, right, right. Because and, and when it comes down to it, I mean, we don't stop and think about this, I, I don't think, every day. But, you know, if, if we just left it to the man, we would, you know, we would obliterate humanity if it wasn't for the women, yes. you know, continuing to have children, uh, continuing the line, you know, uh, if, if the women hadn't uh, discovered agriculture, if they didn't do the textiles, yes. if, um, you know, all of those things that women bring to the equation that are devalued, you know, is what really yes. keeps civilization going. And I, more than even making that distinction between men and women, which I think is a valid one, certainly these days, I think it's the distinction between men and women valuing the life-giving power of the feminine and of nature or men and women not valuing that. So I think that's probably a, even a more workable distinction to make because right. when we just divide it down gender lines, then we get all sorts of reactions. And there, are, of course there are um, exceptions to that amongst men and amongst women. But when we sure. talk about the respect for the life-giving power of the feminine, then I think we've got something we can make sense of in terms of do you respect and value the life-giving power of the feminine 
Well, you know, and clearly somebody who's waging war doesn't usually respect that. No, um, no. But somebody or, who's planting or, seeds. Or, you know, I, I've often thought about, um, you know, when George Bush and Dick Cheney decided they were going to go into Iraq, um, I, I don't know, I, I could be totally wrong about this, but I think, you know, not only do they not value the life-giving force of woman, but I, maybe it's even more than that. I, I don't think they value the lives of people who are not like them. You know, I think that's also yes. part of it. You know, it's easy to blow up people who aren't your religion, who have different color skin than yes. you, who don't believe what you believe. It's almost as if they're non-humans, you know? Uh, and and I, I don't know, I, I yes. think that's that's also part of it. I think you're right, and I think that's something about not valuing that interconnection that's present in nature. You know, I think that movie Avatar, um, you know, brought in that concept of the network that connects us. Mm. Um, when we when we open to it, when we when we are open, like that, really looked at these distinctions, didn't it? That we're talking about right now, the militaristic um, power over dominator model versus right. the interconnected respect for nature, not model. And yeah, I mean, it had a, a sort of a optimistic ending, which I don't quite know that I even believed because um, you know I'm not sure we can win this, and that's very distressing. Right, right. No, I loved Avatar. I really sort of consider it, uh, you know, a goddess church uh, in a way. You know, I mm. mean, I thought it, it, it spoke volumes about everything that uh, we're up against. Mm. And it um, was interesting mm. here in the United States, uh, a lot of the Christians were up in arms about it because there's this weird intermix between some Christians and capitalism and it's almost as if the you know the two or you know two prongs of the same fork or something you know they they're indistinguishable mm, mm. and um it was really interesting to see the christians kind of get their panties in a bunch um because uh, you know this was uh, uh, you know most definitely anti-militaristic and anti-capitalistic you know um, but mm. but yeah, I mean, I was ready to book passage on the first, uh, you know, the first uh, ship <laughs> to Pandora myself. But <laughs> yeah, but so, I guess I guess the thing is that it was pro it was pro imminence, wasn't it? It was pro nature and pro the the living experience of of the of spirit in nature. It wasn't about a a disembodied um, or transcendent spirit. It was about spirit yeah. being ever present within the living reality of 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 the natural world, and that's the threat to a monotheistic religion. That's that's the the basic threat. Um, yeah, and I mean, you remember the tree, and and didn't the tree bring? Uh, I forget now who I saw it a couple of years ago, but it was it was able to bring one of one of them back to life. Um, you know, had yes, the, had right. the yeah. yeah. Yeah, wonderful story. I'm, I I I very seldom buy DVDs, but that one I bought. I'm going to have to. I, I usually mm. look at it every New Year's. But um, so <laughs> yeah. before before we run out of time here, because we are starting to get short. Um, what uh, what was the prophecy in the center of the story of Daughters of Time? The the, the prophecy is that there is there will be a daughter born. There will be a child born from this union who will carry the way of the feminine through time. 
So Abraham, in a way, went off to carry the way of the patriarchy through time. He, he, if, even if he was a metaphor, which the book also explores the possibility that he wasn't a man, literally, he was a metaphor for a change that was happening at the time. But whatever he was, he began this lineage of fathers and sons who carried power and honoured the one God. And this, the prophecy is that there will be this daughter born who will carry an alternative way through time and, mm, and a way of balance. The, the female called. Messiah. Um, so, in, and I guess, and what was the, what was your main challenge in writing a book that covered four thousand years? Oh, well, <laughs> it, it, I really did think that it was perhaps um, too big a task, and the main challenge was weaving the research, and because I wanted each place where the people lived, each migration to have a degree of historical accuracy, even though the book, of course, is fiction and the characters are mostly fictional, although there are some historical characters woven in there. So the challenge was weaving all of that together and it was like a massive tapestry and I'd find a thread and then there'd be another thread and how do they link and, you know, that, I mean, it was wonderful, but at times it was um, an enormous task of complexity to weave all of that together because I, I did want there to be a basis of historical accuracy in right. the, the storyline. Well, and, and you know, and, uh, and I I've written a... I've written no, you, a go, you go ahead. As well. And that was Magical Writing a Fantasy Trilogy, which is another... Um, some other books I've written because I could just enter that made-up world and then whatever happened could happen. There was no requirement for historical accuracy. It is much more challenging, in my experience, to write a novel that is, has historical research embedded in it. Yeah. It's a much more yeah. challenging task. Yeah. Yeah, I I would imagine so and and you know and, and it I I don't know why it tickles me on some level. Um but you know, I wonder how many people remember their, you know, uh grade school history. And you know, ancient Sumer, I mean, that was Iraq. And you know, here Iraq yes, has been right. so much in front of our face. Uh, you know, for the last decade. And, you know, right there between Iraq and Turkey was supposed to be where the Tigris and Euphrates, you know, was supposed to be the Garden of Eden. It's it's so interesting, is, right. isn't it, that, you know, in this, you know, here where all the devastation is going on, that was like the cradle of civilization. It's like the be- beginning and mm. maybe the end, you know, all... Uh, you know, mm. f- from the mm. same spot on the globe. Yep, that's right. And and I think that this ancient history is not probably known by people currently living there, certainly not widely known, um, even as our own ancient history often isn't known or taught in schools. You know, we're taught as sort of a very doctored version of history. Um, and as we know, her story doesn't come into it at all, usually. True, true, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Kali, um, it's been lovely talking to you, and uh, thank you for calling in from uh, from Australia. Is it is it an ungodly hour there now for you? Oh no, it's the middle of the day here. So, oh, okay. Um, very good timing. <laughs> well, good, and good, I just good. Want to say to you, thank you, and and also congratulations to you with your book, and and what a wonderful program, and thank you very much for having me on. 
Uh, well, it's it's my pleasure. And but but before you go, uh, please let listeners know where they can find your books. Uh, my books are available on Amazon. Um, so it's just um, Google my uh, not, not you can Google my name and it will come up with the Amazon link. Or go directly to Amazon and type in either Daughters of Time, Don't Take It Lying Down, or my name. Um, so that's and you'll find it easily on Amazon. Yeah, and and Kali is not K A L I. It is K A A L I I. So double A's and double I's, listeners. So that way you'll you'll get the spelling right. <laughs> well, well, listen, uh, right. Kali. Thank you. True, true. You're you're unique. Um, well, you know, I I I love talking to you tonight, Kali. I hope you'll stay in touch. And um, good luck with your books, too. Um, I, actually, Daughters of Time looks like one that uh, uh, I, I might have to get from my own bookshelf. I, well, I thought I sent you a copy. If I haven't done so, I will do so straight okay. away. Okay. <laughs> oh, I would, I would appreciate that. Thank you so much. And, uh, and, and you know, hope, uh, hope all goes well there with your, uh, you know, your teaching about the mind-body birth control. Uh, I mean, what an incredible gift to women. Thank you very much, Karen. A pleasure to speak with you. Okay, good night. Good night. Well, well listeners, we are about uh come to the end of the show here. And um, not a whole lot of time left, but I hope you enjoyed tonight's two guests. I know I sure did. And I would like to leave you with a quote by Grace Alvarez Sesma. Uh, It was in the book, Tell Me Why. And it goes like this. In the quiet stillness of your heart, you can hear your grandmother's voice. Listen. Her wisdom shines in the light of the stars. That's by Grace Alvarez Sesma. And the other one uh, that I really do like, because you know me, I'm always talking about um, myself and and you folks out there being the cognitive minority. Uh, I really like this one by Gandhi. Gandhi said, never apologize for being correct. Many people, especially ignorant people, want to punish you for speaking the truth, for being correct, for being you. Never apologize for being correct or for being years ahead of your time. If you're right and you know it, speak your mind, speak your mind. Even if you are a minority of one, the truth is still the truth. I love it. Well, uh, that's about it. Until next week, uh, I am looking forward to the big party on Saturday. And... um, uh, I think it's going to be great, and uh, I just want to, again, thank you for um, tuning in, uh, for being involved with the show, for being part of the Voices of the Sacred Feminine Family. Uh, please hit that follow button on my show page uh, so that uh, you will get word of uh, every show every week, and you don't miss any of my great guests. And uh, I hope you will go to Facebook and also uh, friend me there, either on the Karen Tate page or the Voices of the Sacred Feminine page. There's also pages for my books, Goddess Calling, Walking in Ancient Path, and Sacred Places of Goddess. But I am actually working on a fan page so that everything will be in one place pretty soon. All right, well... Uh, in tribute to Daughters of Time and the Priestesses of Sumer, 
I think I actually have some music here um, by Lisa Thiel. And I think I can find it here in a minute. Uh, And I think the song is about Inanna, if I still... Yep, here it is, Song to Inanna by Lisa Thiel. Enjoy. Good night. Have a great week. your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.